0: Well that's enough uh, for announcements. Last year my wife and I were on a prayer retreat and it was way down in Georgia, St. Simons Island, Georgia. Wonderful place uh, to be. And uh, along the way, we're standing in line uh, with maybe getting food or other kinds of things, and we bump into a, a man and his wife. By the way, last night, I did make a mistake. I forgot to introduce his uh, Dave uh, Blake's wife, <laughs> Nancy. <laughs> we're not doing well with names this uh, week. <laughs> but uh, everybody say, welcome, Nancy. And uh, anyway, uh, bumped into uh, Blake. We just start having conversation. He said, oh, you're from Michigan. You ever heard of Simpson Park? And, uh, and I said, I do. I do know of Simpson Park. And he was going to be going there in September to speak on a similar subject or the same subject. And I said, you know what? Bayshore people need to learn more about that as well. Uh, we don't want Simpson Park to ever have anything over on us. No. <laughs> so uh, without further ado uh, let me welcome uh, Blake uh, up here let's uh, give him a round of applause as he comes and let me pray for us as we begin Heavenly Father thank you for loving us thank you for revealing yourself to us thank you God that you don't want life with you to be a mystery and you don't want life around us to be a mystery And yet uh, we recognize that there's uh, uh, we live in this world, but we're not of it. And yet it's difficult. And so through Blake, teach us who and how your holy people are supposed to be. So bless his time with us and bless us in our time with him. In Jesus name. Amen. You did get some uh, of these on the way in. And I am going to
1: make sure take one or oh, you're going to. All right, thank you. Good morning. What a, privi- what a privilege it is to be here uh, for a variety of reasons. Uh, I've never seen a camp meeting like this. Uh, I mean, it's just amazing, not only the enthusiasm of the people, but the facilities. It's just, uh, it's just great to be among you. And then it's great to hear the teaching again of uh, Dave Imbreck. What a great job he does. Wasn't that a powerful sermon last night? And uh, this morning as he led us through uh, the book of Nehemiah. I shouldn't be amazed by this, I've been watching it for 40 plus years, but the reality is that, that God has so carefully woven together what Dave is, is teaching and preaching with what I want to share with you. Uh, we'll look at Jeremiah 29 again on Friday uh, as we think about the instructions for the remnant. Uh, we're going to look at Nehemiah and what's going on in Nehemiah's life on Thursday as we think about the investments of the remnant. And I haven't seen Dave for, I guess, 25 years anyway. Uh, God did all that. So that's just exciting to me. And it helps me to know that, guess what? I think I'm in the right place. I think this is an ordained moment. Now, on the other hand, I'm a little bit frustrated. Uh, Embrick gets everybody when they're just really alert and alive, and I get them on a sugar high (laughs) waiting for lunch. Something's not right, not fair here, uh, but that's where we are. And then I got a couple of former students over here who told me that they're bringing along some speech evaluation forms. I teach communication at Indiana Western University, so they've all given speeches while I'm writing grades, and now the role reversal comes. Aaron's over here writing down the evaluation, and I'll learn uh, soon after we finish up all the things that I did wrong so that I can do better the next time. Well, well, we'll see how it goes. Remember, one of the things I taught you is do as I say, not as I do. <laughs> you remember that line? Yeah, lecture three. Anyway, uh, it's good to be with you. From the earliest days of, of human civilization, salt has played a very prominent role in, in human development. Uh, we know that uh, in many places, uh, salt was an important factor in deciding where a community would grow up. Water was number one, but if a place had water, then one of the things they looked for after that was, is there an adequate supply of salt? What we'd think of as a salt mine. We we know that salt in some civilizations uh, was used as a medium of exchange. For example, oftentimes slaves were bought and sold with salt uh, because slave trading was something of an international trade. And so we didn't have to decide on a currency. We bought and sold slaves with salt. Uh, that, by the way, is where we get our English expression used even today that a certain person's not worth their salt. Uh, we know that uh, in the Roman military, uh, the military people were often paid in salt. Why? Well, it was lightweight, it was something they could carry home and exchange for the currency in their particular place. Uh, So salt has been around for a long time and it's been extremely important in the development of human civilization. But salt was used for a couple of very important reasons. One, salt preserves. Uh, It's necessary for preservation. Um, Last summer, I read, I'm, I'm a little behind on my novel reading. And so I read uh, the 1984 Pulitzer Prize in fiction. How many of you have read Lonesome Dove? A few. It's a great great read, a great story about Woodrow and Gus, who are cowpokes, and they want to be the first guys to push a herd of cattle all the way from the Rio Grande, clear up to the Montana Territory. They want to go from south to north and be the first guys to push a herd of cattle all that way. And they're very, very successful at it. But once they get up to Montana, they get in a little skirmish with some of the Native Americans in that area, and and, uh, Gus takes an arrow in the leg. And Gus uh, is taken into town to the Sawbones, and the doctor says, Gus, if I don't take off that leg, the infection will kill you. And Gus pulls out his six-shooter and says, if you touch my leg, I'm gonna kill you. And then Gus begins to talk to his friend Woodrow, kind of like giving his verbal last testament, if you will. Here's what I want you to do with my half of the herd. Here's what I want you to do with my equipment, my part of the equipment that we bought to, to make this trip. And then one of the last things he says to Woodrow is, I want you to bury my bones in the orchard. Now, they both know that the orchard is a particular piece of property way down in South Texas, and and Gus is dying in Montana. And Woodrow says, Gus, there's no way. I can't drag your corpse all the way back to Texas. And Gus said, among his last words, you'll find a way. So when Gus dies, Woodrow goes to a local builder, and he has a casket made oversized. And then he pass, packs Gus in the casket in salt. And he nails the lid on that pine box, and with the last stroke of the hammer, he says, There, that ought to keep the buzzards away till we get back to the orchard. Why? Because salt preserves, salt keeps things the way they've been, salt stops the decomposition process. Salt is important because. It preserves. Second, salt purifies. Salt purifies. I have, over my lifetime, known a few uh, women who were important in my life who have canned green beans. Nancy canned a lot of green beans when we had three kids growing up, and I was a struggling pastor and um, doing a little bit of side work at places like Tacoma Falls College and back in that day Marion College and so on. And uh, if it hadn't been for her and green beans, we wouldn't have anything to eat in the wintertime. So she canned a lot. Uh, She learned from her grandma. And I remember seeing Pauline in the kitchen canning a big canner of green beans at the appropriate time. Pauline canned green beans way up until the time uh, when she didn't need them anymore for survival. Her kids were long and gone, but she gave them to us, gave them to her grandkids. She canned them because that's what you do that time of year. Well, one day... Nancy's in the kitchen canning green beans and those of you who have seen it or done it know that the kitchen's pretty hot and this big pot is boiling with these beans in it and the jars and she's got a little little pan a little cup like pan over on another burner, and you can hear the lids rattling around in there because she's got that water boiling, trying to get the rubber hot enough so it'll seal. And then she'd pull one of them out with a pair of tongs, hold it with a towel, and, r- and ratchet that ring down for it to seal. But I noticed every time she did that, just before she would put the lid on, she'd get enough salt between her thumb and her first finger. Some of y'all canned green beans, haven't you? You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, she'd put a pinch of salt in that can and then ratchet that lid down. And I'm watching, and I remember Pauline doing that too. And so I said, honey, how come you put that salt in there? And she said, get out of my way or you're going to get burned. (laughs) But, But later we talked it over a little bit and realized, she taught me later, that salt purifies. And then even though we've cooked these beans and boiled these pots and boiled these waters and sterilized these jars and done everything we can to get all the impurities out, that little pinch of salt guarantees the purification process. Salt preserves and salt purifies. Now, on one occasion, Jesus sat on a hillside with his disciples. This is his significant. Those who had begun to follow him with his disciples, he sat on the hillside and he said, you are the salt of the earth. You preserve, you purify. When Jesus said that, he's not thinking about a a fancy little decanter on the table to change the flavor of food a little bit. He's talking about salt for his time and his day. It preserves and it purifies. You, disciples, are to preserve and purify. Now, as we begin, let me just ask a couple of basic questions to make sure that for as long as possible, and we're probably not going to stay on the same page, I'm afraid. I've done this session enough times to predict that we'll we'll have some disagreements as we go along. But let's begin at the same place. Is there anything about American culture that is worth preserving? Absolutely. If, if, you, can't, if you can't affirm that, if you can't amen that, then uh, we're not on the same page. I thank God for people in this room who put on a uniform and put their lives in jeopardy to preserve the freedoms in America. Thank you for that. Yeah, that's appropriate. I know from what little travel I've been able to do around the globe uh, that there are people in other parts of the world who would give their lives so that their children could be a part of American culture. There are some things in this culture that they can't find anywhere else in the world. There are some things in American culture that are worth preserving, aren't there? Who's going to preserve them? You and me. That's what Jesus said. He said, disciples, you're the salt. You need to do the preserving. Are there some things in American culture that need purifying? Do you see some places where the culture is, is disintegrating, going downhill? Do you see some, in, some, some evidence that the culture is running in some places, that it's beginning to decay? Who's going to purify? What did Jesus say? He said, you, church, you and me, you are the salt of the earth. I couldn't help think about that. A couple of summers ago, June 26, 2014, late in the afternoon, my phone began to ring and ring and ring and ring young pastors that I had helped to mentor and to train, young people that had been in my classes and had seen me as something of a role model in ministry, uh, folks in other churches who were saying, what are we going to do now? Now what's going to happen? What do you think's next, Neff? Now what are we do? What kind of a, bizarre, what's going to, what are they going to make me do? Am I going to go to jail? What posture do I need to take? June 26, 2014, the Supreme Court issued a ruling called Obergefell versus Hodge. It's a case that began in Ohio uh, when a homosexual couple filed suit against Secretary of State in Ohio uh, for their right to be married. And the Supreme Court, uh, the the state of, of Ohio, had a law that said marriage was between a man and a woman. And so the case went all the way to the Supreme Court. Now, let me just pause before I go any further and say that some of you will not appreciate or approve the illustration. I understand that. In fact, one recent study says that 27% of white Protestant evangelicals, the majority of the people in this room, 27% think that the Obergefell versus Hodge ruling was reason to have a special service in the church and to celebrate because God had finally broken through. There are others of us who believe that homosexual marriage is contrary to the Word of God. I had a student who challenged me. She said, how dare you take an obscure passage in Leviticus and discriminate against a whole group of people? And I had to say to her, I appreciate the challenge. If I have taken an obscure passage in Leviticus and discriminated against any one person, you have my permission to challenge me. I want you to do that, I said to my students, and I say to you. But the reality is every major section of Scripture, the Psalms, the wisdom literature, that is, the Gospels, the Epistles, the writings of Paul, every major section of Scripture has a prohibition against homosexual behavior. So the real issue in many of our minds is where's America going with regard to its affirmation of the Word of God? Where's America going with regard to what's foundational, what we believe? Now let me just continue to say those 27% of you who don't agree with the illustration, it's just an illustration. It's not what the seminar is about. But I think it's an important one to get out in front of us at the very beginning. Because the reality is, as we look for where do we stand in these days, if we don't stand on the authority of God's Word, then we stand nowhere. Is what it means to be an evangelical Christian. It's to believe in the authority of the Word of God and to believe in a personal relationship in Jesus Christ and to believe in the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. And those of us who have believed that ought not to back away from those things because the social agenda has changed. Here's what I think happened in that case and in several others I want to tell you about in a moment. I think that that decision is indicative of something that's happening across America. What had been mainstream Christian thought as foundational to America, that thinking is being pushed to the margins along with the people who hold to those points of view. That thinking is being laid aside And a whole new way of understanding is becoming the foundation of America. Or let me put it this way. You and I, traditionalists, if you will, evangelicals, people who believe in those three things I just outlined for you, you and I are being marginalized. We're being pushed to the edges. It's not just on that one issue, by the way. Those of you who don't agree with that illustration, see if maybe you can catch what happened in Rankin, Mississippi just one month later after the Oberfell versus Hodge ruling? Court in Rankin, Mississippi ruled against the local high school and fined the high school $7,500 for allowing a prayer in the school. Here's what happened a group of high achievers. I thought we used to call them talented and gifted, but that's probably not appropriate anymore. Uh, High achiever students were asked to create an assembly. And these high achievers were given complete authority over the assembly. I'm talking students now. And among the things that these high achievers decided would be in the assembly, let's open the assembly with a prayer. And one of the students volunteered and said, I'll offer the prayer. There was not a faculty or administrator involved in the decision. There was not a faculty member or administrator involved in giving that prayer. But there was a student, not a high achiever, who was in the assembly and was offended. He didn't want to hear their prayer. He didn't want to listen to their assembly. And so he challenged in court that Rankin High School had allowed a prayer in the school. The courts ruled in favor of the plaintiff the young man who was offended. And they find Rankin High School $7,500, which in my mind is enough evidence that what I'm talking about is happening, that the things that you and I hold dear are being pushed to the side, that we're being marginalized. But there's even more. Of that $7,500, one-third was awarded to plaintiff as a cash settlement. In other words, a high school senior not a high achiever, got 2500 bucks to buy a car to go to the university next year because he doesn't like prayer. It would seem to me that in effect what the court is doing is to pay that student to rat out the school if it doesn't follow the new way of thinking. And meantime, traditionalists are being pushed to the margins. My way of thinking about what ought to happen in the school is being marginalized. We don't need that traditional old stuff, Neff. What we need is a new way of looking at things. And that new way says there'll be no prayer in the school. In the state of Oregon, a couple of years ago, the legislature passed a new law with regard to sex change operations. Children as young as 12 years can authorize their own operation Without parental consent in the state of Oregon. You know, we're a little behind in Indiana and Ohio and Michigan. In Indiana, you can't even get a tattoo until you're 18 unless your parent is present. But in Oregon, a junior high kid who doesn't like the way he's put together can change it. And mom and dad don't even need to be consulted. Let me ask you this. Do you know any junior high kids who are happy with their body? So where is this going? I tell you where it's going. Those of us who believe in the creative power of God to make human beings in His image that ought to honor Him are being pushed to the edges, being pushed to the fringes, being marginalized as a whole new line of thinking is taking place in America. In the state of Georgia Eric Walsh applied for a medical uh, community development position. Walsh was eminently qualified. In fact, Walsh has a medical doctor's degree and a PhD in community health. This guy is no camp meeting conservative, let me tell you. He served on President Obama's commission uh, with recommendations regarding AIDS. He had been a community health organizer, advisor in California, but when he saw an opening in northwest Georgia, he applied, and he was hired on, in May of 2014. One week later, he was dismissed from the position. Someone found out that Eric Walsh is a seven-day Adventist and a lay preacher. And more than that, they found some of his sermons on YouTube. And so his superiors and others, over the course of a weekend, watched what Eric Walsh believed about creation, about the Bible, about human sexuality, and on Monday he was fired. I don't know what's in those sermons. I haven't looked at them. I don't care what's in them from this point of view. Eric Walsh ought to be able to believe whatever he wants to believe with regard to his faith and it not affect his work. But apparently he believes something that the new wave thinks is not very appropriate. And so Eric Walsh, the last I heard, is still seeing his case wind through the courts as he challenged religious discrimination in his employment. One final illustration of what we're talking about. The American Library Association's Office of Intellectual Freedom every year compiles the top 10 list of most challenged books. And last year, there was an interesting addition to the top 10 list. Now you gotta know how this list is developed. Libraries in your community, my community, and all over America keep a list, I'm told, of a challenge to a book. So a parent goes in and says, This book has stuff in it I don't want my 12-year-old reading. I don't think this book ought to be in our library. They may or may not do something about the book, but they make a note of the challenge. Someone else goes in and says, I don't know how this snuck into the library. This is pornography. I really think we ought to do something about this. They note the book and the challenge. Last year, number six on the top ten most challenged books across America was the Bible. So am I exaggerating? Is it just about one bad illustration? Or is mainstream Christian thought being pushed to the fringes, being pushed to the edges, being pushed to the margins? I believe the latter. It seems to me that when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, you ought to preserve and you ought to purify that his church has really failed to be an obedient church. Now you might ask, well, what, what do you want me to do about it? What's a single grain of salt going to do? I mean, I'm just one person. I don't make the laws. I believe the Bible. What are you beating me up for? I'm not coming to this seminar tomorrow. Doesn't make any sense. To, it's not my deal. What can a single grain do? Or, in the total scheme of things, this is, a, this is a pretty small shaker assault we got here this morning. Those of you who are in harmony with what I'm saying and, and, and working with me on this, what can we do, even together? Influencing our communities and influencing the church. What, what can a single grain or a small shaker do about what's happening in this marginalization process in America? I wanna suggest several things to you that I think we must do as believers in 21st century America, things that we must do in response to what's happening in America. First, I call upon you to repent. You say, I didn't do it. What am I going to repent for? You know what? I think Jesus, in Matthew 5.13, suggests that you and I did do it. He didn't say the Supreme Court is the salt of the earth. He didn't say the American Library Association Office of Intellectual Freedom is the salt of the earth. He was talking to disciples, and he said, you're the salt of the earth. I submit to you, if American culture is not being preserved and purified, it's my responsibility. The day after the Obergefell versus Hodge ruling, I intercepted a letter from a young pastor Whose superintendent? very small denomination, uh, Wesleyan thought, but a very small group of people. Uh, this superintendent had sent out a letter to his guys and suggested that what we really ought to do is to hold special services of repentance and ask God's blessing on America. And he talked about how he had been awake all night thinking about where America was going and believing that God was calling upon him to lead a movement of repentance. I submit to you, we need to lead a movement of repentance. We have failed to be an obedient church. We haven't been salt. We have not preserved what's good in this culture. We've not purified what isn't. And we're going to spend some time over the course of this week saying, where's God in all this, and how do I do what you're calling me to do? But for right now, what I'm calling us to do is to repent to accept responsibility, to admit it's not a they problem, it's a us problem, that American culture is in decline, and part of the reason is because we have not done what we were called to do. Now, while you're on your knees repenting, then I submit to you the second thing we need to do is to pray. I call upon you to pray for America like you have never prayed before. I believe we are at a turning point, and we're going to see evidence of that through the course of these five mornings. I believe we're at a turning point in America, that things are changing. I I continue to pray that God might postpone what I believe God has in mind, and you'll see more of that as we move along. Uh, I continue to pray that God will raise up uh, a, a revival in our land. You heard last night, and it's absolutely true, there has never been a revival sweep across this country but didn't start among God's people in places like this. You and I need to pray for revival. Let me give you an example. What would happen if the President of the United States, three Supreme Court justices, and the leaders of both the Senate and the House would all get saved in the same revival? Thank you. You know what? Here's the tragedy. I've made a suggestion like that in several local churches over the last couple of years, and you would be amazed at the number of people who laugh. And I say to you, what does it say about our prayers and our belief in prayer if revival and salvation is a laughing matter? You and I need to come to a place where we pray earnestly that God will intervene that God will come, that God will change the course of, of history in America. We need to begin to pray that people in D.C. will get saved. We need to begin to pray that people who elect folks to go to D.C. will get saved. We need revival. And it's the only thing, I believe, that will stop this marginalization process that's taking place. Part of what I'm about in, the, in this week is to help us be prepared for the marginalization that it appears is coming. But underlying all of that, if you and I would pray in a revival, then everything I'm going to say over the course of this week becomes irrelevant and unnecessary. Thank God, I'd love to become irrelevant in that that regard. The third thing we need to do is to love. We need to love folks. You and I in the Wesleyan community of all people ought to be people of love. John Wesley taught us about being perfected in love. His idea of the transforming of the of the Christian life, of the sanctification of the human of the Christian life, his idea was that it was all motivated by and issued forth in love. And yet I submit to you, we have gained a reputation justly or otherwise We've gained a reputation of people as people of hate. At Indiana Western University, I have very little interaction with the homosexual community, some, some. I've, I've had a few occasions to visit with young people who are struggling with their urges in the dorm. But it's, it's, it's small, it's a small number. But enough that I can say without fear of contradiction this. The homosexual community thinks you all hate them. They think I hate them. Because we have done such a lousy job of expressing our love along with our strong convictions. I was teaching on a totally different matter. I have a seminar on the book of, jo- or on the book of Genesis and Joseph's life. and I was teaching on that in a little church in southern Ohio, we were set up, as I recall, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday morning, five sessions, and then I'm gone. And on Friday night, there was a lady who had been in all those sessions and had participated. You could just kind of see. By the, you can tell by the nod of the head who's with you. You can tell by when folks write stuff down at what they think's memory. You know, she was working with me. She, she was into what I was saying. She came up on Friday night and she had tears in her eyes, and uh, I'm good, but I'm not that good. I couldn't figure out what what I had said that challenged her she but she said, uh, dr naff i i don't I'm not sure yet, but I don't think I can be here tomorrow." Well I mean, you know, if you can't be here tomorrow and you're crying, I want to know more about you, what's you know let's talk about it." And uh, so I just kind of threw out open-ended. I said, "You something going on tomorrow?" And she said, "Well I've been invited to a wedding, I don't know if I'm going to go yet or not. I said, I understand. But I didn't know exactly what she was talking about. I just waited. She said, my grandson's getting married to another guy. And she said, I don't know what to do. She said, if I, if I go to the wedding, then how can I teach my grandson the truth of the word of God and his lifestyle she said if I don't go to the wedding and now she began to openly weep she said how will my grandson ever know I love him and I said you know those are great questions that I don't have the answer for but I know the one that does I said let's just pray together that you'll make the right decision about where you are tomorrow night and that you make the right decision about it, how your grandson and his partner will know that you love them. So we prayed. We got it, went to the altar and, and prayed that God would give her wisdom. Saturday night, I was anxious to see what would happen, and she wasn't in the session. Sunday morning, she was back with a, with a different kind of radiance, a, a different kind of counsel, if you will, on her face. She came up after the service and she said, I wasn't here last night. I said, I missed you. I knew you weren't here. She said, I went to the wedding. I said, I think that probably was a good decision. She said, God gave me wisdom. I said, cool. Tell me the story. She said, God's really slow sometimes, you know. (laughs) She said, "I, I went to the wedding and I really didn't want to be there and I wasn't sure what to say. And she said, the wedding was over, and I got up, and I started into the receiving line. And she said, I'm two or three people back in the receiving line greeting the couple, and I still don't know what to say, and I still don't want to be here, and I'm still torn. And she said, I I got up to my grandson and his partner in the receiving line, and I, I took each of them in one of my hands. And I said to them both at the same time, I want you to know that I wish for you God's very best. And she said, I came away thinking, that doesn't say that I agree with your lifestyle. It doesn't say that I appreciate laws that allow that lifestyle. She said, it says I love you. And I said, honey, that's what it's all about. You and I need to be continue to be or become as the case may be people of love what's a single grain of salt to do when jesus said you're the salt of the earth i think a single grain must repent and must pray and must demonstrate and uh, must love and fourth i think a single grain must demonstrate now let me hasten to say i'm not talking about uh, getting a placard and going to Lancing and marching around the capitol building and saying we've had enough uh, I, I'm not talking about the kind of demonstrations that some of us were Involved in, in the 60s and learned that there must be a way to influence culture I'm talking about what is it you believe Then demonstrate it in your home, in your family Among your children and your grandchildren Demonstrate it in your community and your church if you believe that marriage is a special relationship between a man and a woman, then treat the woman in your life so that your grandkids know it. When this stuff started coming to me, I believe from the Lord. I realized that it had been 40 years since I held a car door for that beautiful woman. And she's been at death's door twice, and I still didn't learn. But I've taken to opening car doors, and more than that, I'm going to teach my grandsons to do that. So when we go someplace together, I say, Eli, will you get the car door for Grandma so I don't have to walk around? Yeah, Yeah, I can do that. And so he's learning what it means to treat Grandma special. Last night, we've got a grandson with us. Don't say anything to him about it. I don't want to embarrass him. But I've been trying to show him all the way here and, and saying, you take care of it on that side, okay? Yeah, I can do that. Got in the car last night and... Uh, he didn't, he forgot. He got in the back seat, and I noted, nodded to Grandma and said, Just leave the door. And I got out of the car, went all the way around and got the car door, shut it, and got back in the car. Never said a word to him. He said, Pap, I'm sorry, I forgot. <laughs> it's okay, man. It takes a while to learn new ways. But listen, here's what I'm saying. If we really believe certain things to be true, then we ought to demonstrate them to him and to the boys and girls on this camp and to our families, and in our homes, and in our churches. What is it that you believe? What is it that you're not, going to, you're, not going, you're not willing to compromise on? What is it that you're saying, that's the way it is in my life, period? You know, nobody's paying any attention anymore to what comes out of your mouth. You and I are being marginalized. They don't care what you think. So show them. Demonstrate what you believe. Open the Word of God at the break table where you work and read a verse. Have a prayer, someplace where it's still legal. You see what I'm talking about? You and I need to become bold. And I I hesitate. Please, please hear a couple more sessions before you go get bold. Because a lot of a lot of boldness in these days is a shaking the fist. I ain't doing that. You're not going to do that to me and to my country nonsense. And I don't believe that's what God's calling us to at all. But I think he is calling us to demonstrate what we believe, what we cherish, what's important to us. And then celebrate. Celebrate the day. Celebrate who you are and when you are. We'll talk tomorrow about some of the temptations that are ours being in this day and this age and this time. I call them the temptations of the remnant. For you see, I'm convinced that you and I are a remnant of traditional Christianity in a culture that has moved to something else. What I'm calling us to is to celebrate the fact that you're a remnant. And I've had more trouble communicating this effectively than any other teaching in these five sessions because there are people who think this is a dark, deep, difficult time and problem and I'm not celebrating anything about what's going on in America. That's why I took to asking you, is there anything worth preserving? Yeah, there is. So let's preserve it. And one of the ways we do that is to celebrate the fact that God is still in charge, that God is sovereign, that God has called us to a certain time and place. You are called to America at a time of transition and change. Bodine University, a fellow by the name of Robert Gregory, had for many, many years an office of religious uh, affiliation, or religious studies, uh, on the campus. He was not a faculty member, he was not a staff member, he was just tolerated. They just let him have a parachurch organization uh, and broadcast Christianity on the campus. Bodine University is not known for its conservative thought. And finally, somebody in that Brunswick, Maine community objected and said, what's Gregory doing preaching on this university campus? And so they kicked him off. They told him, you're done. You've got to bail out of your office. You've got to get out. He went across the street from the university and rented an office at his own expense. And he was packing up the things that had been in his office in the middle of the campus, walking across the street to unpack and to begin the ministry at the edge of campus. See how he was being marginalized, pushed to the fringe. And a CNN reporter who had gotten wind of the story stopped him and said, Robert Gregory, how do you feel about getting kicked off of the campus? He said, I feel wonderful. I'm excited about getting kicked off the campus for a couple of reasons. One, if they hadn't kicked me off the campus, I wouldn't get to talk to you. And so he told her what he'd been doing and what he was going to do. And then he said, I'm excited because finally, finally, I have joined a long list of Christians down through the years. For he said, this gospel that I proclaim has been proclaimed from the sewers and I'm privileged to join those who continue to proclaim it. See, something's happening, and we're we're gonna spend some time talking about what that is. Something's happening in America. You and I are being pushed to the edges. We're being marginalized. Uh, We're not mainstream anymore. Our way of viewing things is not the American way anymore. So how do we behave? What do we do? overarching all that we'll say in these next four sessions is this truth let us celebrate that God's not done with us that God's got a ministry for us God's got a work for us to do now what I'd like for you to do is to find those little groups that uh, that uh, you had in the last session and I'm interested in knowing what you think about a couple of questions the first is this To what extent do you think the church and Christians are responsible for their own marginalization? Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. If you're being marginalized, if the culture's going to pot, so to speak, then whose fault is it? How do you respond to that? To what extent are you feeling like a victim? To what extent are you feeling like you're responsible for what's happening? Get with some folks and talk about that, and then I'm going to ask several to talk to the whole group. Would you do that? Five folks, five people max. Find a group. Does it? Is it your fault, my fault? All right, let's, uh, if I could have your attention just for a minute, I've done this uh, seminar enough times to know. Thank you. Thanks, thanks for your enthusiastic sharing with one another. Thanks. Let's come back together just for a minute, please. I have done this seminar enough times to know that there are some people who st- feel strongly that uh, what's happening is not their responsibility, not our responsibility collectively, and in the interest of equal time, and because I think it's really important for us to learn from each other, uh, what group went that way? This is crazy to blame the church or to blame us just on the basis of Matthew 5.13. Somebody talk to us. How do you feel about me suggesting that we're responsible for marginalization? Oh, please. I, I think we're very
2: much responsible because just as church people and leaders, we are role models, okay? That's right. I can't
3: okay. And in our role modeling, the young people, the children of our societies are just seeing everyone in negativity. Um, even in our first session today, the President of the United States name was said and it was like, "Ooh," you know, he's the President of the United States. We don't respect positions and offices. That prayer is so important. But I really think what we say and how we act with the media stuff of uncertainty for what's truth and not truth, we have to be so careful that in our Christian behavior, we show what we are and not just say.
1: All right, so so you are you're not offended at all by the notion that we're responsible, but you're agreeing with me, but there are others I know who do not. Where I'm coming. Talk real loud and I'll be there. All right, I'll just talk real loud. When I was a young man, my wife said that she heard the state type the uh, thing. When we were in church, I can remember two men talking to each other. One was going to run for office, and the other one said, oh, don't get involved with that. Politics is dirty, and you don't want to even be involved in that. And the Christian community just kind of subsided from from even being in politics. So what do we have in offices? All non-Christians. And we we'll read our history books and read what the, our founding fathers said and those that followed All right, so here's another group that thinks I didn't uh, over-dramatize when I said you're the salt of the earth. Right back here, Kevin, please. We're bringing you a mic. We've got this worked out together now.
4: My is
5: custom. Who I am, so i custom. Tim Comas, Sr. Anyway, I read this question, and uh, I think we're 100% responsible. And I think a lot of it is because we don't go out and witness what this book is saying, okay? And you can go out and witness the people in love. Sometimes you can't control how they take what you say. And I think a lot of that is that we're scared to go out of the reaction of that person saying, oh, you're a bigot, you're this, you're that. Okay, but we can't control how they feel coming back toward us. We're coming to them in love and we're telling them, you know, what this book says about how we're supposed to live. Now, we're not perfect people. None of us are. Okay? I'm only because I'm saved by grace. That's the only thing that saves me. But I still, we need to go out and witness to these people how we should be living. We can't control how they live but I think we're sitting in our little glass houses and we're not going out enough yes. as missionaries or whatever we need to do if we're not missionaries in our communities okay. and going out and witness to these folks. Now I work in a park. I try to witness to people all the time. Some of them come up to me and ask me questions about certain things and I tell them stories. I tell them my witness. And how I've gotten where I need to be, and I think more of us need to go out and right. witness to 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 our people at the at the grocery store. Um, when you go in to buy products, whatever, you know, just just in normal normal living. Like I said, we have missionaries that go out, yes, and they do a great job. But we need to
1: do that as individuals, as, as one one person at a time. So I, I hear you also as being in this camp of folks that says, yeah, Jesus meant that when he said we're the salt and we have some responsibility. I'm still looking for somebody uh, who will teach us uh, with some balance.
2: Okay, this is, um, we didn't really finish a discussion in a group so I won't say that I'm representing my group, I'll just say I'm representing me. Okay. So I think we can't forget that we have an enemy who wants to kill, steal, and destroy us so to put all the blame on the church doesn't make sense to me. Okay. Yes, we are responsible to witness and to do our things, but equally, well, stronger than me without Christ is an enemy whose sole purpose is to kill, steal, and destroy those who love God. And he is, does not sleep, and he's strategic. You know, I don't want to give air time to him, but there is an enemy, and we have to recognize that and know that, does not he get part of the blame and responsibility and I need to be respond to that and ask God, what part in this do you want me to play, but you're the savior?
1: All right, yep. Kind of the Flip Wilson response, the devil made me do it or not do it, as the case may be. Not that at all. I'll give her back the microphone because I don't want the last word on that kind of silliness. So
2: it's not, it's not not letting go of my responsibility, but that's part of the picture to just say, The problems in the world are the church's problems. I'm like, I don't think that's, I don't think the church is solely to blame. And I'm just part of it. You know, I'm born and I have to figure out what's going on Mm -hmm. and to say, you're the blame. I'm like, that doesn't help me live forward and live like, what do you want me to do, God? I love you. I want to do anything for you. But for me not to recognize there is an enemy that wants to kill, steal, and destroy me and all of us. Yeah. Seems like I'm blind if I don't
1: see that too yeah and and let me just let me just say in defense
2: blaming Satan for I have to take personal responsibility for the sins that I commit totally
1: yeah right and let me just say in defense that in as much as I just said okay you're responsible end of conversation then I I would accept that criticism what I want to do is on Tuesday Wednesday Thursday and Friday say so what do we do now how are we going to be effective salt in the midst of a new culture and part of the reason for the shock technique this, this morning is that I have become convinced that we're not waiting, willing to try a new strategy or a new way of doing things because many of us are willing to believe that it's a different world and what I wanted to do this morning was simply to establish we are being and have been marginalized and what we're going to do and this is just amazing to me, how, how what uh, uh, David has been teaching uh, dovetails, but what we're gonna do is to look at the Babylonian captivity, who were people who were marginalized, and say, how did they respond? What did they do? And, and we'll use that as a springboard. Yes, sir.
5: one of the founding fathers uh, principles. And so now even as Christians, we have my way, we have your way, and the fact that we do not have a unified front in a manner to approach society and culture, mm-hmm. I think is our Achilles heel.
1: Yeah, I, I. you said there was a question there and I, I, I think the statement that I agree with for the most part is that.
5: So how do we solve that? <laughs> <laughs> okay,
1: okay, moving right along. It's almost lunchtime. It? and <laughs> Yeah. And Patton taught
5: us in the Great
1: War that we can't win a two-front war. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: just so you know, which we're, we're all- passing the microphone just so that uh, these things are being recorded so that there's not some dead time. So as you get called on, just wait for me to bring the microphone so everybody can hear but also uh, for the recording purposes. Okay, I, I, yeah,
1: I gotta keep moving, you heard what he said. I, I, I hear the problem. Uh, I, there's a sense in which America was ripe for what has happened because of, of how we're structured and how we're put together. But on the other hand, Jesus called us to be one as he and the Father are one. And I I guess I would take that as yet another evidence of the fact that we have failed to be an obedient church. We failed to be what he wants us to be. Instead of looking at denominational groups and saying what separates us, uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we begin to join hands and say what binds us together? And we'll just deal with the I know I'm just piggybacking on your concern and not giving an, uh, an answer, but yeah, oh, she has a question.
4: I feel like we haven't engaged the culture, and um, I attend Caseville United Methodist Church. I just started directing the music, and so we have a cheeseburger festival, so we have a lot of sinners, 30,000 enter Caseville. I've never been there. I was raised in a drunkard's home. My family are addicts. I'm and the woman's Christian temperature, I don't like this stuff. So, but the Lord has laid on my heart. My pastor said, I said, how can I get Christian music up to Caseville with the partiers and the drunks? She says, we opened the church during Cheeseburger. So I ask you all to pray. They're going to open that church, and I'm going to play those instruments as loud as I can out to the crowd. And we hand them out water. We got to reach them. Jesus says you go. He ate with the drunkards, but he didn't drink with them. He ate with them. We've got to get out there and share Christ. Because all i found is, you know what? If they got Jesus, I don't need to get high. Because it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit. And if you get the new wine, people, you don't need anything else to get you through the
1: day. And I got the new wine. Amen to that. Piggyback on that. We've got to find a new way to do it. Because the old ways we were doing it not only didn't work, but in some cases aren't even legal anymore, sir.
5: We as humans uh, have a desire to be popular. The problem is, uh, a lot of lay people, poor do you like, they water down the scriptures because it's popular. And uh, I've got a little saying that says, truth is not always popular, but truth is always right. And the truth is our body.
1: Yeah, thank you. I want, to, I want to move on. There I recommended five courses of action as kind of an overview for where we're going. I said we need to learn as, as a single grain of salt or in our local churches as a small shaker uh, in terms of what's happening in America. We need to repent, pray, love, demonstrate, and celebrate. My question to you is this. What are we already doing among that list most effectively? And what's gonna be the most difficult for us, where do we need to improve? Those five things I think are fundamental, but not easy. What do we, what do we need to do? Take, uh, take about three minutes with your group and decide which of those are, are most difficult, how are we gonna change, what do we need to do? We've had some great suggestions about what to do, but if I'm right that it involves repenting, loving, praying, and so on, some of those are gonna be fairly easy for us because they fit the old model, and some are not, where do we change? All right, in the interest of time, we got time to, we've got time to, I think, to hear from uh, two or maybe three people in response. We've got time to hear from two or three folks in response and then we're gonna be break for lunch. Uh, what, what, are, what are we already doing well? What do we need to do differently if, in fact, this marginalization process is real? I, I got one back here and then one up here, please. We'll see how this goes time-wise. We'll be done. Time to get the kids. You're, you're coming through, I think. Stand on one foot, hold your hand high. Yeah, I, I think it'll work. Go. already found some ways to love folks in your community. It's good. So think, okay, here, we got yeah. Here comes a good mind. Ever ready bunny back on action.
3: we thought that it's not a matter of which one is just more important, but like repent and pray, these are these are underpinning everything that we do. Um, in our churches we need we need to to put more focus. We don't like to go to that dark place of repentance. Hold we it, hold it closer. We don't like to think of going to that dark place of repentance, but that has to happen. Um, We have to repent, and we need to pray corporately. You need to put yourself in a group of other people so that you're not only accountable, but I definitely have always seen that that corporate prayer has such power. God God loves that. It's worship. Uh, Our prayer is worship. And then... We are more able, when you do those things, to love and to demonstrate. And once you begin to, I thought that was great, your idea of demonstration about, and what do we do as a family? You show how you love your children because that opens a door of conversation. It's not that I take my Bible and knock on the door. It's that I show them how Jesus is just changing our lives. You know, I mean, it's. It's, um, he's just in there, because it's insidious. There's always, it's always creeping like, like an illness. Um, the push from society, and if we think we have a lot of different sects and denominations, sects being S-E-C-T-S, um, it's nothing to what the world is pushing at us. Yeah. So Good. we get to the point, we'll just celebrate all day long if we start living our, God's dream for us.
1: What I what I want us to see and to hear is that if this marginalization, that is the pushing of Christian thought, traditional Christian thought, your worldview and my worldview, if this pushing to the margins isn't somehow interu- interrupted by revival, it will be the reality. And what we want to do beginning tomorrow is to say, then what? What is it gonna to mean to be a believer in Jesus 10 years from now in America? What's that gonna look like? I'm gonna to begin to refer to us as a remnant because I think that's biblical terminology. Uh, the Babylonian remnant that we heard preached about last night or, or from the, we heard from the prophet of the Babylonian remnant was a, a reality of people who had been in charge of their own world and their own community and they were the center, suddenly found themselves on the margins and on the fringes. And how they lived, people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, people later in the captivity like Nehemiah that we heard about this morning, like a fellow by the name of Mordecai that we're going to look at one day, uh, those people become our role models for how you live as a remnant. So I'm walking a tightrope here, I want us to pray for revival so that you never have to experience any marginalization and being around it. But I think the Lord would have me to say to you, it's time to get prepared. Life as we have known it, especially you old buzzards like me, life as we have known it in the 50s and the 60s ain't coming back. So how will you be Jesus in your communities? That's where we're gonna go. Next time, we wanna talk about the temptations of the remnant. Then we're gonna look at the strategies of the remnant. What kind of strategies did these folks use to accomplish what they believed God would have them to do in those days? Uh, We're gonna look at the investments of the remnant. Where did they put their time and their energy? And how's that different from where you and I are placing our time and energy? And then finally on Friday, Nancy will have the car running and I'll be ready to run. And we'll ask for some escort out. But we're going to look again at Jeremiah 29. I appreciate so much what David talked about last night. I think there are some other messages there as well for a remnant to understand. And so we're going to look at the instructions of the remnant, specifically the instructions that came through the prophet Jeremiah. That's where we're headed.
0: Thank you. Let's give uh, Blake a hand. Well, certainly, if you have uh, no idea what to talk about for the rest of the day, you've just been given something uh, to talk about. The first time that somebody at the uh, kitchen serving line says no to you, you cannot have both this and that, you will be tested in how you're going to love. You will have a choice. You can put up a sign that says enough. You know, or you can say, well, thank you for serving me, and I'll take that, please. Um, Anyway, yes? Yes? This is Barbie by the way, in case you need to sign up for things. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Sure. We will do that. Thank you, Barbie. Um I mm, yes. Uh we've been given a challenge today. Uh, It was a you. What can a single grain do? That is you. Um, We can lump other people into, you know, whose fault it is and all that kind of stuff, but it is still just a you thing. So uh, today, during your horizontal time, if you're not exercising with Jody, uh, if you're not doing other things, perhaps you might want to consider how today, our family motto is later never happens. Um, And so you might want to just consider today, while it's still called today, How can I, you know, enter into some time of prayer and and go through this list and just let the Lord, you know, speak to you uh, in regards to, you know, where you stand in this world that we live in. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are a grateful people that you open your word to us and you interpret it uh, through a person that we are coming to know and trust. So thank you for bringing us, Blake. Father, thank you for... um, This guide for today. I will fall short of praying through it uh, in the sake of our time so that I might lift up our kitchen and Denise, our leader there, uh, with uh, the crisis that she is now experiencing. When the shepherd is away, the, the flock shall be scattered. But we thank you, God, that at Bayshore Camp we have other shepherds, other leaders that can step in. And we pray, God, for patience amongst us who are being served Um, by others who are in crisis uh, in whatever way that uh, is. So uh, help us to love our kitchen staff today and help us to love Denise by praying for her need. May she be healed, body, mind, and soul as her father as well. So thank you for our time together as we reunite with our families. May we love them. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: All out, so we need you to bring those back.
0: If you are a person who received the booklet and you know you're not a note taker, you know, feel free to put it back in the box so that somebody else can have it. Um, Or, uh, yeah, but we will make other copies available.